Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is bulwark author and former political director for Republicans against Trump, communications director to Jeb Bush, and RNC spokesman in the reverse order, Tim Miller. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Magic Spoon and Miracle Brand in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, there are a few things that are more American than a 4th of July parade. They're held in hamlets all across this land. Then this weekend, Highland Park, Illinois, was holding one of those parades when seven people were slaughtered by a 21-year-old with an assault rifle during their celebration. That's less than two months after an 18-year-old killed 19 little children and two teachers in Udalvi, Texas, with an assault rifle. And a 18-year-old in Buffalo killed 10 shoppers in a supermarket with an assault rifle. You know, with over 300 shootings in this country this year, in this year, first half of the year, tragically, this too has become an American tradition. And, you know, the apologists for the gun lobby and the gun lobby say it's a mental health problem. You know, we, yeah, we have a mental health problem in America, no question. So does Canada. So does UK. So does Germany. But they don't have an epidemic of mass murders with assault weapons the way we do. Congress approved a very modest gun control Measure James, which we talked about last week. I give him credit for that. Doesn't do a whole lot, but it's better than nothing. It may save a few lives. They ought to do more on assault weapons and universal background checks. Mitch McConnell won't allow that. So Democrats this fall, I really think, on the margins have a winning issue campaigning on common sense gun legislation. Unlike the past, with these murders happening every few days, I don't think it's going to fade from memory. Well, I mean, let, let, let's just back up. I, I never tire pointing out from 1994, thanks to Joe Biden and Bill Clinton, we actually had an assault weapons ban for 10 years. It's not radical. All right, it was done. We lived. And you know what happened during that? People hunted, people went to marksmanship classes, people had gun clubs, had everything. All right, such, maybe that's idealistic and unrealistic. This is going to keep happening. It's not going to stop. There's no, you're right, this mental health drives some of this. I think that I think this whole incel movement has something behind it, whatever the argument is. As long as these are available, people are going to use them, and they're going to use them like this. And I'll just say one thing politically, because that's what I, what I, what I deal in. Uh, I remind people when they talk about the economy, stupid, and change versus more, the same was actually the first thing. The third thing is don't forget health care. My advice to Democrats every day, don't forget guns. Everybody's chasing the Dobbs decision as they should. It's a very important thing. It's the, it's the elimination of a right that people had for 50 years. I cannot tell you how many people I talk to that deal with this every day that tell me the gun shit is as big as the abortion stuff. And we should never, ever forget that. And we're not going to get an assault weapon ban. I understand that. But we should talk about it. And, and the public is so with us on this. You cannot believe it. And it's really, it, it, it's really not that complicated. And I hate to say this, 
but we know this is going to happen again and again and again. We know it's going to happen when these kids come back to school. We know that. And, you know, there's only one thing that you can do when, when you face with something like this. You have to press for political advantage. I hate that. They say, well, you, you're taking tragedy, you're taking tragedy, and turning it into politics. The, you know, the, the Republican nominee for governor of Illinois was told about this before they even caught the guy. And he says, let's say a prayer and let's move on. No, let's don't move on. Let's talk about it. It's important. It's critical. Lives are being lost. People's whole emotional life is being utterly ruined by this. Let's politicize this issue. Well, what has happened in the past, uh, even with awful incidents like we witnessed over the past six weeks, is it happens, there's a hue and cry, uh, people are outraged, and then we get to the election, uh, it becomes the seventh or eighth or tenth or sixteenth most important issue for those people, whereas the other side, which is, as you say, in the distinct minority, man, that's everything for them. I think this is different this time, uh, to an extent at least, because it's happening so often, it's happening so tragically. I mean, little school children and the 4th of July. I mean, is there any place that's safe? So I think if, if it's played right by proponents uh, and they don't start getting distracted by other you know, crazy issues, I'm for an assault weapons ban. But if you think somehow it ought to be, you know, we ought to start first with just lowering the age or raising the age to 21, okay, that's the first step. But universal background checks, this is an issue you can run on in most places in America. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And and don't, don't fall into the trap of we shouldn't politicize this. This was a political act. These things were banned. Let me repeat that. They were banned for 10 years. And, you know, they basically came back and it was not much more than a whimper of protests from people. All right? This, this, this needs to be politicized. It is the only way this problem will ever be solved is through politics. I hate to tell you that, but that's the truth. It's not going to be solved through prayer. It's not going to be solved through thoughts. It's not going to be solved by anything else. It's going to be solved when the public says, I want this shit to stop. Only then. Speaking of politics, James, oh, let me add one more thing to that. I think the most important thing that those Democrats mainly, uh, but gun control proponents can do, is reach out to young people, the 18 to 34-year-olds who are passive voters uh, and aren't as likely to turn out, and tell them the stakes they have with guns and abortion. A fascinating Monmouth poll came out uh, this week, which showed that Joe Biden is underwater uh, among those 18 to 34-year-old voters, a 63-28 disapproval. They've just pretty much written him off. Normally you'd say, okay, that's really bad news for Democrats. But when you ask them, which party do you want to control Congress? It was 59-34 Democrats. Reach out, that is a key voting block Uh, for people who care about guns, abortion, and Democrats this fall. Absolutely. And who cares what they think about anything? As long as they come out and vote. Take 90 seconds for just a little political tutorial here. About 7% of the country are true independents. Trust me, I'm right on this. I don't want to waste my time explaining it. So there are four categories of voters. Voters that are high propensity to vote, will vote for you. Voters with a high propensity to vote, they'll vote against you. Voters with a low propensity to vote, they will vote for you. Low propensity to vote, vote against you. The single most important block 
obviously are a low propensity to vote and a high propensity to vote for you. That is the definition of 18 to 34. You're so right. You're exactly right. And, and also, just as a matter of simple math, if their share is, let's assume that their normal expected share is 16, if that goes to 18, that's more than a two-point jump because it all has to add up to 100, so another demographic has to lose two points. You can win an election on that. Do the math. I, it, it's not that complicated, but I don't want to spend my time explaining to you. It is, it is the key to everything. I, I genuinely believe that. I, I'm, I'm like evangelical on this. Yep, uh, I agree totally. James, uh, the Fulton County uh, DA has subpoenaed uh, little Lindsey Graham, a senator from South Carolina, Rudy Giuliani, uh, and five of the clown lawyers who work with him to try to steal an election uh, uh, after 2020. How serious is that, that investigation, do you think? Well, I'll tell you how serious it is. So just like I said to you, Jeff Sessions is the orchestrator of Cassidy Hutchinson and all of the stuff that comes after and remember the movie, The Graduate, they said one word, one word, Benjamin. I'm going to give you one word. Plastics. Rico. Rico. <laughs> Rico. Georgia has, I am told, reliably and informatively, one of the most aggressive state Rico statutes in the United States. I'd love for someone to do a legislative history on it because I'm sure it was some anti-black thing they came up with. Yeah. But the existing law on the books in Georgia is very broadly construed to bring a RICO indictment. And remember a couple of things, points I want to make. Under RICO, you don't have to show intent. And, and that was drafted by a, a Notre Dame law professor, and that is what John Gleason and those used to bring the mafia down. If you remember, that that was the whole thing that brought the entire mafia down. Right. The second point I want to make about this, and this is very important, the grand jury that's been impaneled does not have the ability to indict, but it was in panel specifically to gather evidence. It has been authorized by the Georgia courts. At a point, they will turn this evidence over to a regular grand jury. And people, knowledgeable people, believe that given the way that this statute is written and the, the, the elements of, of, that are required for a conviction are much more favorable than you think. So just remember, you heard it here because you're going to hear this a lot going forward. RICO is, is the word. And you think this ultimately reaches to Trump, for sure? Well, okay, how can I say for sure? But, but I, do I think it? Yes. And I think, the, and, and, and I think it's, going to, it's going to get a lot of people involved. It's going to get the fake electors involved. You already said, like Lindsey Graham says, he's not going to comply with the subpoena. Well, I got news for you. You know, in, in America, you don't have that choice. You just don't get a subpoena and say, I'm not going to comply with it. Right. Not, not, from, not from a legally impaneled grand jury, which this is. And, and I, I, I got to tell you, that, that when they took me through this, this, this RICO statute, and this is somebody that doesn't have anything to do with the investigation, but is very knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. And uh, I, I think you're going to start reading a lot about the Georgia RICO statute. Yeah. 
James, I wonder why Lindsey Graham doesn't want to want to uh, obey that subpoena. I think I have an idea. Maybe we can visit that visit that later. No, I don't. I can tell you why he doesn't want to go to jail. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's well, pretty simple. Neither neither would you, or neither would I. But we're not guilty <laughs> of anything. That's right. I'm not worried about the RICO statute. We'll come back to RICO, guys. Remember it out there, RICO. Right, RICO. Hey, James. Um, the political climate has been pretty gloomy for Democrats for the last six months. Um, you see it changing? I, I do, and we talked about this. And I, I see it, in, and this is not just one source. I didn't talk to a guy who talked to a guy. I've talked to a lot of different guys. And I, I'm pretty confident it's gotten three to five points better. Still not the greatest in the world, but is. And I, there was a... In, in, you don't want to place too much stock in this, but there actually was a special in the, a Senate seat in Nebraska in a district that, that Trump carried by 15. The Republicans won it, but won it by six. We have been around long enough to know that these canaries in the coal mine yep. warrant further investigation. I'm not saying that it's definitive, but this is not what you, you would, we would believe that the political climate would be much more favorable for Republicans now than it was in 2020. I think there's evidence to bear that out. It does seem that there's been an underlying change. And the other thing is, is to, you know, I, I hope I'm wrong on this, but I suspect there's going to be more shootings. And the, the, these abortion legislation is going to keep coming up because in a lot of states it's unclear what the actual law is. And so this, this story is not going away. This is, this is going to be an evolving story. And this is also true in Georgia that I know. If I told you that I talked to somebody knowledgeable about Georgia politics this morning, you, you, you would be safe to assume that. And they're going to have to deal with that. James, I think there's one other element. Traditionally, uh, for midterm elections, uh, a very leading, important leading indicator was the president's approval rating. Biden's got a terrible uh, approval rating. I'm not sure it's as relevant this year. I'm not sure that it may not reflect the extent people say, okay, Joe Biden... You know, he's yesterday, not a bad guy, but, you know, not that great a president. I'm not sure that's going to affect down-ballot uh, elections as much as it has in the past. It's going to make a difference. You'd much rather have him at 47 or 48 than at 39 or 40. Uh, but but I'm, I'm, I think there may be some Democratic candidates who can survive a relatively low Biden approval rating, assuming that inflation's a little bit better in the fall. Let, let, let me pose a question to our audience and just think of yourself. When you think about who has more power in this country, do you believe it's President Biden and the Congressional Democrats, or do you believe it's the Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell? Ask yourself that question. Mm -hmm. now just, just, just mull on that a second. When it comes to real power, who do you think has more? Because we're accustomed to believing that, you know, generally the president and Congress have all of this inherent power. Of course, the congressional majority barely exists. I don't know how to explain that to people. And the Supreme Court is exercising ruthless power constantly and continuously and will continue to do so. And Mitch McConnell is so powerful that he can even dictate pre judicial appointments by President Biden. So let, let's just, I think your point is right, is correct, is potentially correct and potentially well taken. And that youth poll that you cited that I did not know about gives buttresses that case even further. It sure does. 
And let's not forget it was Mitch McConnell who for a year changed the size of the Supreme Court. He decided it was an eight-member, not a nine-member uh, Supreme Court. That, that is correct, as our yep. dear friend Walter Dellinger, who we miss by every minute, not oh, every day. Oh, every day I think about him. Hey, Tim Miller has written Why We Did It, chronicling his rise in Republican ranks and followed by his revulsion of Donald Trump and emergence as a leading critic of Trump and the GOP. Tim, I, I'm going to confess I've only glanced at the book, though I've seen your comments and I'm a loyal subscriber and huge fan of your work with the Bulwark. So I am prepared, I hope. Uh, well, thank you, Al. Um, I, I, I saved some goodies for the loyal Bulwark subscribers in the book, you know, to keep you interested. So when you know when you get a chance this summer when you're at the beach, uh, I think you I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm going to do it. I've, I've started it and I'm going to finish it. Uh, you know, as an old guy, I covered Ronald Reagan, and I recall Republicans back then feeling they finally had a hero. Democrats had FDR and JFK, and it was authentic. Reagan was their hero, yeah. but Reagan's hold on the party was nothing compared to Trump's a man of no social or moral worth. How in God's name did he become so dominant, Tim? Well, um, there's a little book called Why We Did It that I talk about all of this. <laughs> but no, the, look, here's the short of it. Um, uh, the Unfortunately, I, I think there was a much bigger part of the base, not the entire Republican Party. I don't want to smear everybody in the Republican Party, but a much bigger part of the base than we realized that was motivated much more by grievance, by animus against the other side, animus against elites, against immigrants, against you know James's friends at the our Harvard faculty lounge, um, then then they were motivated by these underlying principles, um, you know the sort of three-legged stool that Ronald Reagan ran of of fiscal conservatism and military strength and 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 social conservatism. I think that you know there 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 was there was that element. I think that there was a lot of certainly pure-hearted Reagan Reagan supporters. Uh, but what happened essentially was when push came to shove, the uh, the pure-hearted Reagan supporters uh, decided to give in to their animal impulses and Donald Trump to stay in the mix, to stay on the team, and and the the rising faction within the party that dates all the way back. You guys probably know better than me, but dates all, sir, at minimum back to Buchanan, and all the way forward um, uh, has just this. Uh, connection with Donald Trump that is much more visceral, much more emotional than than what we'd seen with past politicians. And and you know, just in short, I basically use if you look at Buchanan, I use it as like a, a snowball metaphor on the hill. And and if you know, you go back to New Hampshire, what nineteen eighty seven or whatever, and and you know, George H W Bush at the time has has a bigger snowball. Uh, Buchanan's just had more momentum and it just kept rolling down the hill and kept be being bigger and bigger and, and eventually some of the snow started to pop off of the uh, of the HW snowball because people got increasingly grossed out by the party and some of them left the party slowly but surely over time and, and more people came in who were attracted to the kind of the Buchanan Trump wing and, and this is where and this is kind of where we landed today and, and you're right his hold is nothing like it I, I, I quoted I don't think this made it in the book but I quoted Jeff Rowe who is the Ted, you know the Ted Cruz advisor um, that you know he said, uh, look Tim, 
like Trump gets Saddam Hussein level numbers in the Republican base. It was nothing like this for Bush, nothing like this in the past. Right. Yeah. And, and so his, the loyalty is, is, is really very different than, than these past examples. Yeah, the Pappy count actually was 1992 in uh, New Hampshire, but your point is absolutely yeah. right on. <laughs> there you he, go, sir. He, You're he, right. Sorry. You see, you weren't born then. He built on the foundation, but I think your point is a very good one. He built on the foundation of hate that certainly Jesse Helms uh, uh, personified in the 80s, Newt Gingrich in the 90s. It's just that Trump did it more effectively and more demagogically even than those demagogues. Much more. And, and, he, and Trump also had this broader appeal. You know, Buchanan is a little bit of a crank, right? And, and, and a real ideologue. Um, and, and I think part of the appeal to Trump is that he was able to kind of combine this, this sort of angry Buchananite paleoconservative element of the base with more of a casual, you know, somebody whose who's political engagement prior had been casual. I, you know, a lot of people, frankly, that, that, are, that go to these Trump rallies were turned off by, they don't like Ted Cruz. You know, they don't like the social conservative uh, stalwarts, right? Like they're not, day, you know, weekly churchgoers. Um, they, they, don't, they don't care about, you know, the sexual, you know, the bedroom, sexual mores being, you know, the government uh, having control over. And so Trump kind of appealed to this apprentice crowd, you know, in addition to the Buchananite crowd and created this majority and, and everyone else, the, the people who are the topic of the book, um, is, you know, this old establishment type essentially just had a choice about whether they get on board with this thing that was fundamentally different than what they had signed up for or whether they bail like I did. And, and I was pretty, um, pretty disheartened that, that the overwhelming majority decided to get on board. Yeah, you're in a lonely, uh, lonely corner. You know, whatever happens to Trump, uh, I'd like to see him in an orange jumpsuit, but uh, he still has a great hole. Uh, you can argue whether it's as much as it was or whether it's going to decline. But it seems to me that even if it does decline, that Trumpism is very alive uh, in the Republican Party as much as ever. Look at the gubernatorial candidates in some states, the senatorial candidates. And, and there's only, it strikes me, Tim, and I want you to pick up on this, there's only two ways to really address and counter that. One is more and more Republicans have the courage of Liz Cheney. That ain't going to happen. Or secondly, that they're going to suffer a big electoral defeat uh, and have to adjust. And that seems unlikely to happen. So what's your hopeful scenario? Um, my hopeful scenario is pretty dark, gentlemen. Um, uh, but I, look, here, here, there's another thing that's happening that's important to understand. And, and my book isn't about this. I'm not a geopolitical expert. But if you just look around the world, the conservative party in, in everywhere, in the Western world and, and in South America, everywhere essentially, has, has become more nationalistic you know, more in this vein of, you know, not the classical liberal um, Bush, Blair, Clinton, for all their small disagreements, like this general philosophy of classical liberalism, uh, the globalism, like th that's out on the right throughout the world, right? So I, I think that, you know, we're going, we're seeing this Boris Johnson drama right now in England, but I, I think Boris Johnsonism is really the best case scenario for the Republican Party. The Republican Party is not going back to compassionate conservatism, John Huntsman, my old boss, is not walking through that door with a we need to deal with climate and be nice to immigrants and, and, and have that kind of conservatism. None of that. That's gone. What could happen, I think, and when I look back, I think what 
you know, in, in retrospect, could have potentially been done to stave off some of the conspiracy and the fear mongering is how can you appeal to this working class Republican Party in a way that actually addresses their genuine grievances, right? Can you have a more, call it protectionist, culturally conservative, a little bit more isolationist GOP that appeals to these voters who were turned off by the Iraq war, whose communities have been hollowed out, and 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 kind of actually try to deliver them policy results rather than just deliver them conspiracies about vaccines and fantasies about election fraud and, you know, demagoguery. I, I, I think it's possible, right, that the GOP could sort of pivot into more of a permanent kind of working class nationalist party that's not going to appeal to me that much. But, but might be less dangerous than what we're seeing for Trump. The problem is it's kind of like that old line about communism, right? Like true, true communism has never been tried. I don't know. Has true conservative populism that doesn't lead to demagoguery ever been tried? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Not really. But, but the Boris Johnson kind of party is, is I think, the, the most hopeful analog. Which is, not, which is not devoid of demagoguery, by the way. But James sure, Carville, take over. So, so, Tim, what you did better than maybe anybody ever is you explained how addictive campaigning is. Well, I used to call the smell of cardite. You know, there's these stories of, of these soldiers that, that just when they leave the battlefield, they just, they just become addicted to the smell of cardite. Mike Murphy calls it the crack pipe. All yeah. right. And when you get when, when you've experienced that kind of combat, t- tell us about how. You just want to fucking win. You become, as David Brock said, blinded by the right of any other people. But I really think that that your book is almost literary on this very point. And very few people experience that. All right. I mean, people read about it, cover it, write about it, make movies about it. But when you're not in that headquarters, in that fight, Every day, you know, I hate these motherfuckers, every one of them. I just want to beat their ass now. You know, t- talk a little bit about how addictive it is and how easy it is to get caught up in it. And particularly at the presidential level, oh, there's God. just nothing like it, right? The Klieg light, the intensity of presidential politics is so high. And I wrote, I thought that um, Olivia Nizzi did this interview with, an, do you remember this in the New York Magazine? It was like with an anonymous Trump staffer. And the, I, and I do Trump remember. I, I like her. I don't know. I like her. Yeah, I like her. And she explains. And, and he, this this person, I assume it's a guy, because because he sounded like a guy, explains how he got addicted to you know leaking behind the scenes. He wanted to be in the Trump administration, and then he and then he'd leak, and then something. He said all of a sudden, the first time it happened, it's on the front page of all the newspapers, and it, and you know he says something like, "I'm I'm playing with live bullets now, and boy, is it fun." And I read that, and that just made me feel so bad on the inside because I was like, "That resonates with me." I w- that was me. I, I, you know, I got into politics, you know, because I loved politics as a kid. I, I loved the war room, and I loved the game of it, and I, I, I was more of a, more of a conservative, but I was always kind of a moderate, right? I liked the West Wing, and I just I liked the 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 the, the, the pageantry of it all, and the game and the competition. And so I get into it. In 2010, the Tea Party stuff's happening. I'm getting kind of grossed out by the GOP. 
John, I get this call from John Huntsman, who I just mentioned, and it's like, this is my guy. Like, we can, this is a moderate Republican. Yeah, he's my type of person, and I went to work for that campaign, and the campaign didn't go well, but I did really well. I, I eviscerated Mitch Daniels, <laughs> and basically, you know, our oppo hits on him might have been the reason he didn't run. I was, I, we, we went after Mitt. Um, you know, all the reporters are calling me. I had all the oppo. I had all the dirt. And, and, and so I got promoted, right? You get promoted up the ladder. Then the RNC calls say, we want you to do this for, against Obama, what you did against Mitt. And I did it. And then that, and then, you know, we lose that race, but people are like, man, uh, you know, Tim was really good at delivering these, uh, these attacks on Obama. And so then we start a firm that's like, let's start doing this to all, all democratic candidates. Right. And, 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 and so something that happened so fast, it was a year and a half. I went from being like, I earnestly want to work for this moderate Republican because I believe he could be a good president to I'm getting this rush of seeing, you know, my imaginary hand, show up on the front page of the New York Times or seeing myself on television and getting a message from an old friend from high school that's like, man, you did great on that TV hit. And you become enamored with this and you become enamored with the sport of it and the desire to win and the desire to defeat the other side. And all of a sudden, the actual point of politics, which is delivering results for, for your fellow citizens, like trying to get someone elected who can, who can better serve the country, that get, that it just gets totally lost in, in the campaign culture. Uh, to the point, it becomes so bad, where if you are the person in a room who says, maybe we shouldn't do this because it might, it's a, it's a little bit hyperbole, it might inflame people, you become the turd in the punch bowl. You know, your colleagues are like, if you do that too many times, if you do it one time and you say, okay, we need to not do this because the press will be mad at us, that's one thing. But if every week you're the one saying, this tactic is a little too aggressive or this tactic is inflaming people, you become the bad person. You, they send you to the back of the office. So like, all right, what, buddy, you go hang out with the wonks. Like, we don't need you. We're over here. Those of us in the game, we're trying to win. And it is. It's intoxicating. Uh, the whole the whole element of it. And and I think that I, I would have thought that Trump just his manifest incompetence and bigotry and idiocy would have shaken my fellow colleagues from that. I and mean, like, you really love this game so much that you're going to do it for this asshole. And, and like the answer was, yeah, yeah, they do. They love the game so much they would even do it for somebody that they know is is dangerous. And, and, and so I think that was, I don't know that if you're a banker, you know, you recognize that part of politics or you really get it. And so I tried to do my best to, to kind of explain that mindset and how easy it is to get caught up in it. So I mean, it's a short story and we'll go back to you. Yeah. When you run campaigns, we didn't have electronics. So you'd have these pink callback slips. Yeah. So you'd go out to lunch, you'd walk back, the, somebody'd hand you 25 of them. Everybody <laughs> in the world wanted to talk to you. The day right. after the campaign, you get fucking one. Right? <laughs> and it's the whole brush. And, and Thanksgiving, you would just start shaking because you were like a soldier addicted to combat. And all yep. of a sudden, they had a ceasefire and you, you didn't know what to do with your time. And it, 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 I think every person that has really been in the, the crucible of politics has had that feeling. Like, why is this over? <laughs> Chris Christie said, I quote him, Chris Christie basically gives that same story, right? It's like uh, he's out of the governor's office 
and, right. and he does it, and he thinks this is the the corrupting part of this. Me and you right now, we're self aware enough of right. how how exciting this is, but how dangerous it could be. Christy, totally unself aware, is doing an interview. I was watching him, and he says, "You know, I left the governor's office, and and that that buzz that you get from somebody needing you, from somebody calling you, it just all goes away like that." It's a and, light and switch. I needed, I needed to fill it up with something, and so you know, I didn't. And and so the Trump campaign called, and and there I was. I, I he and he was totally unself aware of, of like how of how that happened to him. That that he you know even went along with Trump. I completely understand, and they, they don't hit a dimmer; they hit the light switch. Right. Okay. It's yeah. an on and off switch. It's not yeah. like. You, you know, you bet you were the governor, even the ex-president. It, 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 you can't believe the, the, the difference between being the president and the ex-president. Just in terms of everything, you go from a 30-call motorcade to a three-call motorcade. Right. All right. It, it, you know, everybody, you know, wants you to, to reflect and be a chin scratcher as opposed to being in the middle of it. But anyway, I, the private for, for the reason too, that anybody, right, wants That's the to one understand. Thing. You, go from being on, think, you go from doing coach that's a big. Right. That's a big drop off, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, if I can, if I, if I'm for Trump, I get to start doing the FBOs again. It becomes right. it becomes easy to sell yourself on it. This is it, rights. It, it, you know, it, I had a whole it, chapter on what, rights and how rights became addicted to all this. I think that you, better than anyone that has written about this, understood this and admitted. So I got to. So Thank I'm. See, if we go through different things in lives, we work for people. They've made mistakes. We all know that. We understand that. I've worked for 22 different, 22 different countries, you know, and people say we did this, and but I did that. Not going to answer it, and I'm, I, I'm very comfortable with it. I really don't give a fuck. All right. But the one thing i got to ask you and your friends about, and I understand the Iraq war, maybe that was a mistake. It was a kind of ball frog thing. It, it yeah. looked good when it started. Okay. John McCain, I understand he has this sort of heroic thing. When did you know that Sarah Palin was the most massive mistake that could possibly be made by any presidential candidate. I mean, not just a, you can see somebody in a desire to win. Yeah. This was just a, a, and I, by the way, I asked Sarge, I had him come to my Tulane class. Sarge, by the way, is Steve Schmidt. Yeah. He came after the thing, and I asked him about it, and he was kind of uncomfortable. Well, you've re realized things. That I didn't press him, but you know a lot of people, everybody had to have this one phone call where you just said, God, did we fuck up here? It was ever an epiphanous moment where you're not like not going to Damascus and you got knocked <laughs> off your horse. So what happened? Explain I that. I mean, they me. all knew pretty quick. I talked to Mark Salter for the book, who was McCain's speechwriter, and he did. He had an epiphanous moment very quick, very early during the prep, you know, because um, he had writer's speech and that part went well. And then he starts prepping her for interviews and he's like, oh my God, this one, this, this woman is going to be a disaster. He had that moment and he was on the inside. My experience with McCain was, was interesting and and I think speaks to what we were just talking about, the rush and the lack of and how it can block your clarity. So I was on McCain's primary campaign in 07. And, and you might remember the campaign tanks and, and he used to fire a bunch of people. I was on the I was in the group. I, I was in the uh, group, that first group. Um, and they asked me to stay, but I was dealing with my sexuality. And I was like, I got to no. I, I'm going to come out of the closet. Everyone who'd hired me on this campaign had just got fired. I was supposed to be loyal. This is a lesson I learned in politics. They all tell you you should be loyal to your boss or whatever. That is just stupid. Nobody has any loyalty <laughs> to their staff <laughs> in politics. You do what's right for you, young person right. listening to this podcast. But anyway, I was convinced I had to be loyal to my boss. So I, I resigned when he quit or when he got fired. And so I was outside when the Palin tech happened. And to me, it just couldn't have been more clear. 
I, I was outside the campaign and I was like, you, this, this woman has nothing like this woman would be a nightmare. Um, and, and, you know, the Katie Couric interview is obviously the thing that kind of stands out banging it from the outside. This was one case where I wasn't sort of on the inside and, and, and my friends who worked on the campaign, I interviewed a lot of them for the book and, and this, what's the word? Like this bunker mentality sets in. You know, like they saw the same thing I saw, but they didn't have the clarity because they were still inside this game. They were still inside the competition and they got mad at the way the media was unfair. And Katie Couric asked her unfair questions and and this is elitism and this is second, whatever. Right. And you convince yourself right. about this. And so I think that Steve and Nicole were were rare inside the campaign in that they saw it and, and felt like they needed to do something about it um, when it was too late, um, unfortunately. But um, a lot of my friends who were in the campaign didn't have that clarity that I had being on the outside. And, and I think that just speaks to how this the competition, the team you know, um, can, can blind you to certain things. I, I saw it clear. I saw it clearly. And it's why, and, and for me, I look back on my career and I'm like, man, maybe I should have just become a journalist or whatever back in 2008. <laughs> I don't know. I saw, I saw where this thing was going and, and instead I just kind of got sucked back in the old, old, old godfather analogy. Well, I, I kind of remember I turned over to Alvin, a Glenn Campbell song or something. There's a load of compromising on the way to my horizon. Yeah. And, and I think there's so much truth yeah. in that because when you, again, when you're in, you know, when you're in combat, when, you know, you're sitting next to the people with you and you just want to win, you know, and some point a Vermont soldiers like knew, oh, my God, we've been lied to the whole time. It's been a whole bullshit endeavor. All right. It, and it, it, it happens in politics. But I, I really want to congratulate you for, I don't you know, probably not enough political professional addicts out there to make you a bestseller, but to those of us who are out there, it, it you know, it, and it's not just people We're that work on the shit campaigns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's not just but people. We got more you, to go. Yeah, <laughs> if people are working on the same But Al, let me turn it back to you. But I, I, yeah, I, but I, I, I just want to just get on that point, though. If you are a political addict that you're listening that you're listening to, that was just James saying you got to get this. This is going to feed it, your little. Exactly. This is going to feed your little fix. All right, so go out there, <laughs> yeah. go out there, and yeah. go out there and buy. This is this is right in the vein, man. Yeah, right in the vein. Let me ask you about some contemporary figures or types. Yeah, types in, 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 in your former party uh, yeah. now. Um, I, I, some drank the Kool-Aid, um, mm -hmm. but I think there were a lot more who were opportunists, like little, little Lindsay. But I think the embodiment of that latter group may be Elise Stefanik, who was, yeah. she headed the Moderate House Wednesday group, saw the handwriting on the wall, and became a Trump sycophant, if you will. She's got a big future in this party right now, though, doesn't she? Huge future. It's paid off. This is why the book is kind of depressing because it doesn't offer a lot of hope for change. And at the same time, it demonstrates that a lot of the people who gave in to these rationalizations, these compromises that James is talking about, um, were rewarded for it. Um, Elise is the most stark. I focus on her because uh, I worked with her at the RNC. We worked together, believe it or not, on that famed autopsy yep. um, where we wanted the party to become more compassionate and welcoming. Um, Reince Priebus. Right. Uh, yeah, with Reince. And so I, 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 I use all of the characters that worked with me on the autopsy as kind of emblematic of, it's interesting, we all put out this one document where we agreed on where the party should go. The party went a completely different way. And so some of us said, okay, 
screw you, see you later, and others went along. Like, why? What was the, what was the difference between us? Elise is the most dramatic example of that. She runs in 2014. Like the pure Tim Miller campaign. If I could if I could make a campaign in a lab to appeal to me, it was we got to deal with climate change. You know, we uh, have to uh, change on gay rights. Um, you know, we have to be welcoming to immigrants and refugees. But you know, we still need a strong military. And on balance, I think government should be a little smaller. I, this is like my pure can you know future right. conservative can campaign. That's what she runs in 2014. The most event like anyone the people I interviewed, everyone that worked with her on her campaign, they all said it was the proudest moment I ever had in politics. This was exactly what I hoped the party would be what are we now, seven years later, eight years later? Not a single person on that campaign still works for her. One of the people, um, she spoke at, at their wedding and and then a year later fired them on a conference call because they were had suggested too many times that, that, that she toned down the Trump stuff a little bit. Um, she just made a pure... Like there was no compromising here. This was this was not the Glenn Campbell situation. This is an about face. She saw that the only path to the top and to power was through Trump, um, and uh, and there were a couple of eye opening moments for her. Uh, her colleagues kind of walked me through, you know, where they thought, why they thought she changed like that. And now I do think it's going to pay off. I think that she's on the short list both for Speaker of the House and Vice President. Yeah. Uh, in the next in the next five to ten years, and uh, you know she did it at the cost of basically all of the people that helped her get there. It's a sad story. You know, I, I think there were a few people in the Trump administration who I can admire. They were in there to prevent worse things from happening. Jim Mattis comes to mind, but there weren't very many. Now, you write a chapter, one chapter, about someone who I think is a friend of yours, Alyssa Farah. And she didn't leave the White House, Tim, though, until a month after the election. She put out a statement saying it was the honor of her lifetime, the great successes and the effective job they did on the COVID crisis uh, and other great successes. Those were lies. And then he craters. She turns critic, gets a gig on CNN. Why are these Monday morning quarterbacks like her any better than the Corey Lewandowski's? It's a great question, Al. Um, I, Alyssa's not my friend, actually. Or we're not, not friends, but I'd never met her before the book. I, I, okay, I found I'm, her story interesting because she bailed. And just, just for clarity, I did my best to be fair to her. Here's why I think I was maybe nicer to Alyssa. Because the reality is, if, if the question of the book is why did people go along with something they know is bad, I, uh, the, one of the things you have to answer is, well, okay, how did people shake free of that? Like, what was it that made people shake free? And, and for Alyssa, I thought I had a jaded view of her, just like you laid out. My view is she wants to be a TV star. She wants to get these big contracts, and she knows if she has Trump stink on her, she can't do it. But I went and we met multiple times and had drinks, and there were tears. And, I mean, this was just a person that was grappling with this. She knew she made a bad mistake. Um, I, I don't want to defend her decisions at all. I, I mean, I told her, we yelled at each other. You can read the chapter. I mean, we're screaming yeah. back and forth. Like, yeah. well, how did you go serve this guy? You knew it was a disaster. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you say, tell people to vote for Joe Biden? Why didn't you warn the country? So I, I'm not, this is not a defense of her, but it, but it's interesting to me that what what actually shook her free. And in the end, I think that what shook her free is that she saw that it was over. She didn't buy the lies about the election fraud. And so she had this clarity from being outside the, <clears throat> the group thing, outside this rush that James and I were just talking about. And she was like, my kids are going to look at me and think that I'm a monster. Like they're going to think I'm history's greatest monster and I can't, 
I have to be, I have to do what I, I have to do the right thing on this and I have to stick with it. And why I think Alyssa is interesting is because there were a handful of people that were with her in that moment. Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, uh, most of the Republicans basically all agreed with her in that moment. This is too bad. I've got to break, break. All of them are back in his clutches, except for basically her and, you know, now this young woman, Cassidy, um, who I'm re- I think was really brave. And so what what made it stick? I thought it was interesting to explore that. It's, it's not to, you know, turn her into a hero, but I do think it's a category difference than, you know, the other slime and sleaze that are still staying around them or keeping their head underwater. I mean, you have this just really quick, this Bill Stepien asshole who says, I'm on team normal. And it's like, you're not on team normal. You stayed through this whole time. And now he's with Trump. Yeah, now he's still with Trump. And by the way, he's also consulting for Harriet Hageman in her primary against Liz Cheney, where they still are spreading the big lie. You're not on team normal. You're an asshole. You're just you just are smarter (laughs) than the crazy people who are who are spouting the same thing. Like you're worse than them, actually. Give me the crazy Kraken lady and the pillow guy who's on drugs. Like they at least believe this nonsense, I think. Like Stepien is going so so to me, Stepien and his ilk are the are the villains. And Alyssa is a flawed person that did the right thing in the end, and maybe there's something we can learn from that. No, I think you make an interesting point. I mean, she's no Steppy, and she's also no Jim Mattis, but, uh, you know, right, I think that's yeah. a fair point. Let me ask you, James and I have a rare disagreement. I want you to weigh I in love that. This. I'll adjudicate. I like uh, ranking. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, all right, Judge, Judge, Judge Miller, here it is. <laughs> I believe in February of 2021, Mitch McConnell could have delivered more than enough Republican votes to impeach the former president and ban him from running again. There would have been a huge huge firestorm, and I think it then they would have gotten it over, over it and turned to Ron DeSantis, whatever have you. James says that would have been political suicide. Uh, no, he would, he would have been ousted as, as the majority leader if he had tried that. He would That's have been ousted as the majority leader? I don't know um, that. Okay, well, boy, this is tough. I wanted to have a clear answer to this because I, I think I think the answer is both. I think that politically James's assessment is right, but practically Al's is. I think that the vote, I think he could have done it. I think that they were close. And this is what bothers me. It's like it was it was 17, you know, so you had to get 10 more. It was kind of tough. I did the math back at the time, and I didn't think it was really going to happen. But I was, I was, you know, once you get up into 15, 16, you know, you're looking for, man, who am I going to scrounge up yeah. here? Can we get John Cornyn to be number 17? I, you know, the, the names start to, to, to get pretty depressing. Mike Rounds, I mean, that's, yeah, you know, right. there, there but, are um, enough. But here, here I, I think in the grand, I think that short-term political calculation, James is right. Long scope, I I do find it really hard to believe that here we are, 2022, inflation is happening, people are unhappy with Biden, Ron DeSantis is doing his imitation Trump shtick. What, I think that most people would have got over it. I think there would have been a short-term pain for the Republicans, but I think that most people would have gotten over it and would have gotten on board with Ron DeSantis. You did it, then have this wild card of, okay, well, just because you convict Donald Trump doesn't mean he disappears. He wasn't going to go down to Midland and paint like George W. Bush, and he was going to take, you know, he, he would have lit a fire to the building. So, you know, it's hard to know the counterfactual. But I, I, anyway, I, I think that it was, my opinion is, the short-term pain, if you're Mitch McConnell, was probably worth it for the long term, you know, but then you're in service of Ron DeSantis and you l- lose your majority leadership. <laughs> so right, right. it might have been worth uh, it for the history books, uh, but not okay. worth it for him in the short term. That's a very <laughs> judicious answer, Judge Miller. I'll right. turn it Thank back you. to James. Yeah, I, sorry, just, uh, my, my position was he could have done it, but he would have been ousted. 
Okay, the, Jay, I give it to James. Sorry, and, and he didn't. He he would not have survived a vote in his own caucus. Yeah, that that, I, that I caucus think, didn't have a good replacement. But anyway, uh, we'll never settle that. Right. We'll never set up. But that that's my view, and I think that's yours too. So. Al and I have been, been talking since maybe the, the late 80s, and I always say you, you're always looking for the good Republican. And, boy, it was going to be <laughs> Lamar Alexander. It was going to be Rob Portman. It was going to be They this. weren't my candidates, James. I what want to point out. I had okay. Richard Luger and John uh, McCain. Yeah, look, look, whatever. But they, all, they didn't exist <laughs> under Trump, okay? Right. All right? They didn't exist. It, and all of the people that anybody thought was going to be you know, short of, of, of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzig, who are probably not going to be in, or Kinzig's definitely not, and Liz likely won't be. If there's some sort of people like you that are, are, are looking maybe for a sliver of hope, are there any, like, two or three people that you see that that might be butting into to something sort of, no, I don't there's... know what you call it? There's no sliver of hope at the national level, uh, at least in the near term, maybe medium term. But uh, I mean, at the state level, uh, there are a lot of good Republican, not a lot. There are a handful of good Republican governors. Larry Hogan is good. Jared, Charlie Baker, Phil Scott, right. Spencer Cox in Utah is a good governor. Uh, so uh, there are a handful of state and local Republicans that have managed to maintain their integrity and survive this. So if you're a 23-year-old kid working in, who wants to work right. in Republican politics listening, I'd point you to the states to get out of the swamp. Um, uh, but here's my problem. Here's the thing that frustrates me. And they, now I'm going to turn this question back onto James for a second. Right. Is, is like, because I'm all of my people who say this to me are like, okay, I guess we need to start a third party. And I'm like, I, I don't, I, why can't, why can't there just be more of an appeal at this moment? Why can't people just say, you know what, I'm a John Tester. Joe Manchin, Joe Biden, Kirsten Sinema, Democrat. I, I just, I don't get it. Like, I get it if you're an ideologue on abortion or whatever, and you just can never vote for a Democrat. But, but, the, but the Biden administration has done what? I mean, they, they maybe they overspent on the COVID bill. I'm just speaking, putting my Republican Paul Ryan hat on. They overspent on that first COVID bill. But then they've done two bipartisan bills. The, the Ukraine has been handled very well. Afghanistan was handled poorly. I, I don't, I mean, it's like, that's pretty good. I don't, I, that's pretty good. I, I just don't, it, for some reason, we can't have this thing like we used to. I and mean, there, there used to be these Rockefeller Republicans, these conservative Democrats. Like, why can't people just say that? Like, I'm with Joe Biden when it comes to democracy and these other pressing issues. I'm, I'm a, you know, reasonable gun reform, these other pressing issues. I'm against Joe Biden on abortion and, you know, and some foreign policy stuff, but I'm a Democrat. I, I, for some reason, people can't get over that hump. And the Democrats are doing a really job, bad job selling people that they can. And I, like, I All think right. that's a more realistic landing place right now than hoping the Republican Party is going to magically bring Richard Luger back. Like that ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> so what 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 I what I believe and what I tell people in and believe me I'm aware of what the Democratic Party is what it is today anything the only hope for the United States the only one all right bar none no argument no anything is the Democratic Party that's it on a national scene. So there's yes, a lot of pressure on, on you to start doing better. I, I, I understand If you're the hope of the free world, they, they, you got to start are, doing a little better. They are successful Republican governors. They are disastrous Democratic mayors. Don't yeah. get me started, okay? I wrote a piece in a in local paper. I, I understand that. Some of the policies that are advocated disaster, but on a national level, that's it for the foreseeable future. And, and I'm not, and, and that's a very dicey bet, I might add. 
in my opinion. A very dicey bet, but there's no other there's no other alternative. And, and we'll talk about it in outrage. But uh, Tim, from my vantage point, I, I'll see you uh, Wednesday night at Garden District Books in New Orleans. But I, 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 in, I say this in, in, in I'm a bullshitter. All right. And I, it might be some bullshit, but not very much. I think this has the potential to be the best political book since what it takes by Richard Ben Kramer on the 88 oh, campaign. And and that's high fucking praise, let me tell you. That's, that's the highest day. fucking praise you can get. <laughs> you're getting me, you're uh, getting me blushing. I'm serious. No, yeah. but I'm serious. What you did, to, to the extent that anybody, I don't know how many people care about what it's like to be in this, in the, the utter addictive nature. And I see these young people... I'll get them a, a, a job on a campaign that, that they're full of idealism and, and, you know, this and two days on it, they call me back and said, fuck it. I just want to win. I hate these bastards. <laughs> right. yes. And it, it's almost a, a universal reaction yeah. when you see it. And, you know, what, you know, it's like the minute you get your Jersey dirty, that's it. Okay. Yeah. This bullshit's over. I'm not nervous anymore, but I, I congratulate you, uh, you on a great book and I'll see you in New Orleans and, uh, We'll get a cold one here. I'll see you in New Orleans on Thursday bet. night. Don't show, don't show up Thursday? the wrong okay. day. 15th. And I'm sure you okay. got some other New Orleans readers here. Third next Thursday night, the 14th. I'll bring Come em. on by. I'll drag them on. Welcome. You bet, uh, Albert. Tim, you, I just want to say you 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 equivocated as a judge, but boy, you're a great guest. You're a great author, <laughs> and everybody out there, whether you are a political junkie or not, uh, get this book. Why we did it. Uh, and you'll learn about the sad, sad fate of the Republican Party. Tim, thank you so much. You bet. Yo, I love you so much. Okay. Thanks for having me, and thanks right. for correcting me on that history note. I've got to get my primaries right. See, I've got certain, you two old-timers around to get my primary years there right. There are very few benefits in being old, but that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Al. Thanks, man. Right. Okay. All right, James, now for our listener questions, which as always are terrific, a lot this week. Kevin, who's in Vashon Island, Washington, this is a good question, says, what are your thoughts regarding Moore v. Harper? That was the environmental case decided by the Supreme Court involving West Virginia and Cole. Uh, and, and Kevin goes on to say, Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Kavanaugh have already signaled their intentions to remove court oversight of state elections. So that's the question generally, but talk about Moore v. v. Harper. Yeah, so it, it's weird because I think you and I had a conversation with this, had several conversations about this this morning. And from my understanding of it, of course, I didn't read the decision. Uh, and I'm Lee probably Walter Dellinger. Right, right, well, we do, but we can say people thought it was going. It was terrible. It was awful. But people thought it was going to be even worse. And I suspect in chambers when they saw the reaction to the Dobbs and the gun case. This said, it, it, it was terrible, but many of the commentators thought it was going to be even worse. And I think that's where Roberts had the thing is, let's don't do this all at one time. Let's chip away with it. I, 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 from my understanding of the commentary on it, people thought it was going to be god-awful. It turned out to just be awful. And yeah. that's where we are in, in, in terms of when we see things, we're grateful for just awful. But I, I'm not a we, – we, we, at some point, we need to have a good legal guest on here to explain what's going on. And we had Linda 
you know, when this came out, but before we, we talked about this case in anticipation, but I, I don't know, but I, a lot of people who I respect their judgment says this, this thing is bad, but could have been worse. Yeah, James, I think you're right, but but the history of this court of the conservatives here is is that they start there and then they build on it. That's what they did with guns, with the Heller decision, and then right. they came the New York decision. So I, I think you're absolutely right, but that doesn't mean that the next time it won't be god-awful. No, no, no so, they're coming back with more. They're not, you know, they're, as long they're, as they retain they're, they're, like, they're like ants in the kitchen. They just keep right. coming. Gordon in Norwood, Michigan, cites Walter Dellinger, uh, All right. who was, uh, God, we miss him every every day. Uh, Walter said it would be, a, this is talking about Roe uh, decision, it would be a blow to the legitimacy of the court. But the question that Gordon asks is, would, uh, does, is there any legitimacy left of the court? I think Walter would accept my modification here. Yes, the court is legitimate. We're a nation uh, that is, is ruled by laws and we have a Supreme Court. We don't like their decisions. Uh, we still have to uh, obey them. What it is, is it's an illicit court. It's a politically illicit court. It was put together by Mitch McConnell cheating, legally cheating, I suppose, but cheating. Uh, and they have a bunch of right-wing ideologues on there uh, who uh, are determined to remake America, as Linda uh, Greenhouse said last week, you know, basically a white Christian nation. And uh, I, I think we all need to obey Supreme Court decisions. They're legitimate in that sense. But I hope every Democrat in the country runs against them this year. They are, uh, I think, uh, changing the country in a way that most Americans really don't want. I don't think they give a shit about their legitimacy. All they care about is their power. And, and, you know, we we hear all this crap in foreign affairs about soft power. And if we hear this stuff, you know, we used to hear, well, so-and-so is an institutionalist, okay? They don't give a crap. Understand this. The only thing they care about is power. And I'll, I'll go one step further. I think this court is driven, I really believe this, by religious fanaticism. And you look, you look across the board, you're going to see more and more of this. And I'm sorry, I, I, I hate to say this, but I'm not going to mumble institutionalists and legitimacy and sorry, decisis, precedent, any of that shit. They, they, you know, we want people to tell the truth. These guys just go to senators, congressional committees, anything else, and they lie through their teeth, and they don't give a shit. You understand that? They don't give a shit. Understand that and act accordingly. James, we have a question from Canada, Linda, who says, what is it in the American cultural tradition that encourages the idea that one can impose on one's personal ethics on others? Is it merely a matter of politics? So that's always been a thing. And I'm going to go back to the court. And you see a lot of the commentary is, and I'm probably not answering your question exactly right, but allow me to be circuitous here. And they said, look, they overturned Plessy, and so this is the equivalent of Plessy. Actually, the foundational aspect of Plessy was is that the state legislature had the ability to decide who went to what school, which is the same argument that was made in Dobbs. And one of the basis for overturning Plessy is, is that they alluded to the fact that there was no harm done here. The state of Louisiana wanted certain people to ride in the back of the bus, in front of the bus, which I think was the basis of, of, of Plessy. I think it had to do with a bus ride that 
expounded beyond that. And what Chief Justice Warren in the court said in 1954 is we demonstratively now know that this is harmful to people. And that was part of the basis for overturning it. What has happened is, is we now know a lot of the reasons that you that you ought to have these abortion bans that turn out to be not true, that, that, that were dangerous to the mother, it's actually safer than childbirth, or that there was psychological uh, detriment to doing this because it just that people would be that. We, we demonstrably know as a terms of research that none of this is true. What they believe is that they have a better way and if people would just do it their way, it'd be better, and they're willing to use the law to do that. This goes back a long time in the history of, of, of the Supreme Court. This is nothing new. They have tried to impose their version of what America should be as opposed to what America wants to be. And that, that your question is spot on, and this is just a perfect example of it. Yeah, it sure is. Um, Sandra in Staten Island, New York. Good question here, James. Do you think it's wise that Democratic campaigns have been running ads to bolster Trumpian Republican primary candidates? She cites Josh Shapiro and Democrats of Pennsylvania doing that for Mastriano. Isn't that playing with fire given the current midterm headwinds? First of all, Sandra, both sides do it. They've done it for a long time. You try to pick uh, the weaker candidate. Maybe it worked in Pennsylvania. Maybe it worked in Illinois. I'm not sure. But I agree with you. It's playing, it's playing with fire. The classic case of when, uh, that we all remember, those of us old enough remember, was 1966 when the Democrats really wanted, they didn't want to run against George Christopher for governor. They want the mayor of San Francisco would be the strongest Republican candidate. So they did everything they could to hurt George Christopher and help a movie actor named Ronald Reagan because we knew he would be easy to beat. Uh, I think it's playing with fire. They've done it for a long time. It's going to continue to do it. Uh, I think there's a better use of resources. Uh, well, first of all, the, the, I've always believed that there's nothing more amusing than the world, than a fool that doesn't know they're a fool. And I don't expect you to comment on this. And you see a lot of these guys, particularly down south, you know, they just pontificate at the bar and they, I, I think that it's all based on a column that David Brooks wrote, who I think is the prime example of a fool that doesn't know he's a fool. First of all, there's nothing wrong with doing it. It's not immoral. By the way, in this case, don't know if it's causation or correlation, but, but you're seeing all of these like Republicans coming out for Josh Shapiro. We're, we're kind of waiting on Tom. We're, right. we're waiting on Tom Rich. Understand. This is the person whose opinion that we're waiting on. All right. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. I can remember when Rush Limbaugh tried to get Republicans to vote in a Democratic primary in Pennsylvania. I, I, the, the, the facts escape me right now, but, but anybody could find out. So Brooks writes a column saying the January 6th committee has failed before it started. That was idiotic. It was profoundly idiotic. The idea that there's something immoral or wrong about them trying to do it, I can't tell you that it's good. It, it, in some instances, it may work. In some instances, it may not work. There's certainly no morality involved in this at all. And in this instance, it, I, maybe he would have won without it. Again, I can't argue that. But there's nothing wrong with it. Well, I'm I'm, I'm not going to join you on, on David Brooks. He's a good, he's a good friend of my wife's. I, but in I any event, moving on, the I, next I didn't one, ask you to. 
Uh, yeah, I know you did. I, I appreciate that, James. The <laughs> yeah. next uh, question is from a frustrated teacher, Heather. Now, Heather, you got you you got a good question, and we're gonna we're gonna read it and have James answer it. But Heather, when you're writing again, tell us where you're from. I know you're a frustrated teacher, but I want right. to know where you're from, Heather, because you could be from probably you know 50 states. She says the Democrats have one issue. They, she thinks they're the law and order party. They're defending the rights of people to an equal shot at fulfilling life, uh, liberty, and calling for consequences for those who break the law or aspire to be the law. Why can't they seize on that, James? So, so this is a question I have, and I want to ask friends of mine in the polling thing. So what we do is a battery where we say, who do you think is better, Republicans or Democrats? All right, and so it's up protecting Social Security and Medicare. Democrats win plus 20, all right? Fighting crime, Republicans generally win by a lot. I, I wonder after this gun stuff if this is like narrowed considerably. It, it, it's something I'm gonna be looking for. So it, it, I'm so glad we got this question because I just read a story this morning and I'm sure it's true about the profound negative educational effects that COVID has had on kids. Yeah. And we, it, it, if, if this country, if there's anything in the world that we're going to need for the next, uh, you know, we've always needed teachers in, in fundamental ways that we can't imagine, man, we're going to need good teachers and so many of them for such a long period of time because this thing has dug ourselves into a hole that in terms of childhood development, not just emotional development, physical development, but particularly intellectual development, it, this is this is going to affect this country. It's going to affect our grandchildren, Albert. It's just not going to affect our children. This, this is how profound this is. And this is how necessary and important teachers are. we we got to teach... We ought to start teaching teachers with the same reverence that we have treated veterans. Uh, and, and we're just going to have to decide that we're going to really have to increase teacher pay in this country to levels that, that we could hardly anticipate before. And teacher uh, yeah, respect. I really mean that. Uh, and respect. Yep. And we got to have teacher's day. we got to do all kinds of things. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm not going to live long enough to see it. I understand that. But wow, this is going to be something going forward, man. To all, teacher of every every kind in this country, man. If if you're 22 years old, and you're you're a sixth grade teacher, you're going to do more to shape the future of this country than almost anybody. Yep. James Marcus in Omaha, Nebraska, says I'm a local elected Republican. He said a Reagan Republican, not a Trump Republican. Uh, re our conversation with Tim earlier. And he right. really enjoys uh, the two of us talking through the issues, though he always doesn't agree with us. I can understand that. Understand Sometimes that. I'm not sure I agree with myself, <laughs> yeah, uh, Marcus. I agree too. Yeah, we don't but, agree. Uh, we have but, our sad disagreements too. Right. Uh, this is a good question. Regarding student debt, I would be interested in exploring options to help people out but until we fix the current cost of higher education, wouldn't eliminating student debt just further push costs higher by greedy, greedy universities? Marcus, I consider myself a liberal, and I am for addressing a lot of problems. I have enormous problems with forgiving uh, all student debt for three or four reasons. Uh, number one, it goes to, that would go disproportionately to upper-middle-income recipients. Uh, number two, I think there are those who say, wait a minute, I paid off my student debts. Why are we going to forgive everybody now? And thirdly, the point you make, it may just accelerate the higher cost. 
There may be a way to forgive some for lower-income in, individuals, a means-tested forgiveness at a lower level. Uh, but you, hit, you really touched on something, Marcus. Tuitions at public universities have gone up about 200% over the last 20 years. For private universities, about 150%. That's not sustainable. I want teachers to be well-paid. I want universities to have you know excellent curriculum. But a lot of that is going, I think, for... Um, too much bureaucracy uh, and padding too much in the way of fancy uh, playgrounds and everything for college students. We can't, we can't keep up that pace. I, I, I could not agree more. I agree with my, our, our Republican friend who's elected official in Omaha. The, the other thing is, l let me say this. You signed a contract. All right, now, are there instances... Where particularly with veterans are big victims right. of this. They come back. Before they exploit the for profit. Okay, I'm, I'm totally sympathetic to that. I'm totally sympathetic to, that, that some of this is like fraud. We can set up to do something like this. But, but you know, I always tell the story of my students. You got Jag and Jill. They're both excellent students. Jag says, I want to go to Tulane. I want a prestigious sheepskin. By the way, Tulane's doing really, really well now. He gets quarter million dollars in debt. Jill says, you know, I'll just go to LSU. I'll get a less prestigious thing. I won't rack up debt. I'll get a part-time job. I'm working at the student union. So now we go and say, okay, Jill, you pay off Jack's loan. Well, it's, it's, there are opportunities available to you, and if you want to go to Tulane or you want to go to Wake Forest, that's great. They're great institutions. You know, pay for it yourself, or if you borrow money to go there, pay it back. It's that simple. I really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe more of a hard ass than our friend from Omaha is. Yeah, yeah, and and even though in in public institutions, you know, two hundred percent increase in tuition over the last uh, over yeah, the last it, twenty years, it, some of that may be some of that may uh, the blame may lie with uh, with, with these legislators. legislators. A lot of it does, uh, well, you know, but lot, it's it, it is not sustainable. But watch the movie Starving the Beast; it'll explain a lot to you. Marcus, that's a great question. A great uh, question. All right, James, I have finally found the good Republican. It's Marcus right. in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay, right? go, Marcus, go. <laughs> uh, finally, Jonathan in California. Jonathan, good question, but again, next time you write and tell it's us where state. in California, yeah. it's a it's pretty a big, big state. state. Right. He wants to know, he says, I live in California, but I want to support senators in jeopardy in swing states. He's talking about Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Nevada. Uh, what's the best way to do that? I believe in direct contributions. I think the most value, all my accounts, look, you can, there's any number of things that you can do, but let's say if you have, you know, I don't know what your circumstances are, but somebody wants to give $1,000, the first thing I do is I just do a little research and look at it as an investment. I, I could tell you any number, you know, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Nevada, a lot of places come, come to mind, but always pick a race, Give the it for and for complicated reasons that you and I would understand, but they're too too difficult going, and even I don't fully understand them. But the best dollar that a campaign can get is an actual contribution to the campaign yep. because they have more leeway in what they can do with it, and they actually get a, a, a favored rate. So, right. as opposed to me telling you what to do, I, I can I could rattle off seven places: Arizona, New Hampshire. Uh, you know, maybe even Colorado and Washington State, maybe they're looking a little bit better. But find something you're interested in where you particularly like to match out, match up, write a check, and then follow it. 
but that's that's my recommendation to anybody. Well, that's a good that's a good recommendation. And Jonathan, next time tell us where you're from. Keep yeah. those keep those uh, questions coming in. They're terrific. I apologize for only getting to a limited amount. They're so good it's awfully hard to choose each week. But if you send it in again, uh, hopefully we'll choose it next week. All right, James, now for the Outrage of the Week. I am outraged at liberal critics of Liz Cheney, like Democratic election lawyer Mark Elias, who complains she's a real conservative on most issues. Yes, she is. That makes her forthright courage against Trump's assault on the Constitution more compelling. This is about democracy, not taxes or defense spending or abortion. At critical times, conservatives have stood up to earlier threats. Margaret Chase Smith to Joe McCarthy, or Sam Irving during Watergate. Liz Cheney follows in their footsteps. As citizens, whatever your politics, we should all be grateful. I, I don't want to exaggerate here, Albert, but there's so much in one story that tells such a bigger story. The story on, on CNN, it was posted, I think, yesterday by a guy named Isaac Edward DeVore. I don't know him, but I've read it, and he seems like a, a, a good, knowledgeable reporter. And what happened was, idiotically, the White House, the Bill Better, I shouldn't say, the Bill Better Act, had this conference call after the decision came down. And they had a, a bunch of celebrities out there. And one of them was a, a, a actress or, or actor, whatever you call them these days, by the name of Deborah Massey, who was outraged. She, she famous because she played a part of um, Will and Grace, which is a like, cutting-edge thing. And they were complaining about the Democrats, which that's all they do in Hollywood. And I, 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 I would like for this quote to be, it, it wasn't in quotations. I want to be careful about this, but the reporter poured this. Messing said she'd gotten Joe Biden elected and wanted to know why she wasn't being asked to do anything at all. Well, if that is true, Miss Messing, you didn't get Joe Biden elected. And I have dealt with these Hollywood people. And whether or not she said that exactly, they have a very, very exaggerated opinion of themselves. Now, I, I could say that the Build Back Better people were really stupid to have a conference call with these people because they knew exactly what they That's were going to get. That, that, was a, that was a dumb move to start with, all right? I, I have dealt with these people. They Again, they have a – I'm sure she's a very talented person, a, a very smart person. I don't know if you said that, but if you did say that, you're an idiot, you, do you think you had more to do with getting Joe Biden elected to James Clyburn? No, you did not. Not remotely, not in any way, shape, or form. And until these coastal elites understand how limited in politics their influence and power is, we're going to continue to be dictated by them. And until people that work in, in Build Back Better at the White House get that starry glaze where they just want to talk to celebrities, they're not going to do well. I, I, I thought this story was instructive on many, many fronts. I, if, if that guy misquoted her, he did, he did, it was not in quotations, all right? But when somebody says something like that, it should be very carefully sourced. I don't know if Ms. Messing is right. I don't know if Mr. DeVore was right. I, I have read him. I, 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 he appears to me to be a solid journalist. And I, this, the, the, actually, her saying that sounds believable to me. It really sounds believable, having dealing with these people. And I'm afraid you're right. It does sound believable. 
Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicom. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Magic Spoon and Miracle Brand in our show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. <laughs>